This evening in our Bibles, we'll be reading from 1 John chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. You can find that in your pew Bible on page 1400, 1400. After we read from the inspired Word of God, we'll then also read what we receive to be a faithful summary of that Word of God from the Belgian Confession, Article 18. Article 18, and in your Forms and Prayers uh, book, uh, in your pew rack, you can find this on page 171. We read first a word from the very Word of God, 1 John 4, beginning at verse 1. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. And this is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard was coming and is now already in the world. You are of God, little children, and have overcome them, because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are of the world, therefore they speak as of the world, and the world hears them. We are of God. He who knows God hears us. He who is not of God does not hear us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Thus far this evening, our reading from the Word of God. Then to Article 18 of our Belgian Confession that is entitled, The Incarnation. So then we confess that God fulfilled the promise which He had made to the early fathers by the mouth of His holy prophets, when He sent His only and eternal Son into the world at the time set by Him. The Son took the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of man, truly assuming a real human nature with all its weaknesses except for sin. Being conceived in the womb of the blessed Virgin Mary by the power of the Holy Spirit without male participation. And he not only assumed human nature as far as the body is concerned, but also a real human soul in order that he might be a real human being. For since the world had been lost as well, for since the soul had been lost as well as the body, he had to assume them both to save them both together. Therefore, we confess against the heresy of the Anabaptists, who deny that Christ assumed human flesh from his mother, that he shared the very flesh and blood of children, that he is fruit of the loins of David according to the flesh, born of the seed of David according to the flesh. Fruit of the womb of the Virgin Mary, born of a woman, the seed of David, a shoot from the root of Jesse, the offspring of Judah, having descended from the Jews according to the flesh, from the seed of Abraham, for he assumed Abraham's seed, and was made like his brothers except for sin. In this way, he is truly our Emmanuel, that is, God with us. Congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, we have then, by God's providence, the subject matter before us for our consideration this evening, but by way of introduction, I want to pause and just try to answer a question that might be in the minds of some who hear these words this evening. Why so much attention to the incarnation? We would answer the question at a couple different levels. First of all, there is the practical point that we are following the articles of the Belgian Confession as they expound the basic essential doctrines of Christian faith. Uh, You might say these are the essentials of the Christian faith. Uh, And that word essential became quite 
common in our usage over the past couple of years, but what do we mean when we say something is essential? We mean that you cannot have Christianity without an understanding of the Incarnation. We see that very clearly in 1 John 4, where the Apostle John exhorts the church to test the spirits, to evaluate the spirits, to have minds of discernment, uh, not just simply to uh, ingest everything that floats about uh, the strange winds of doctrine that come and blow to and fro, but the Christian church must be a Christian church that is characterized by discernment, and in order to be discerning, we must have a certain knowledge. You might even say we must have a sharp theological knowledge that is able to discern truth from error, especially in relationship to who Jesus Christ is in the Incarnation. Uh, we would also seek to answer this question uh, at another level, and that is it is becoming very, very popular in our society and in our culture and even in some churches just to simply about speak about the faith in kind of an abstract way. Well, well of course I believe. Of course I have faith. Now, not to be overly complex, but when we speak about having faith, there's both an objective and a subjective aspect to having faith. The subjective aspect of saving faith is the actual exercise of faith, that, that certain knowledge that the Holy Spirit works within us, and that, that trust or that reliance upon the person of Jesus Christ. So there's this subjective exercise of faith, but it's equally important to have the objective content of faith. And so when someone says, well, I believe, the next question is, well, what do you believe? It's very good that you say that you believe, but what do you believe? And it's especially important for all of us, but maybe even more so for the young people of this congregation, not only to know what you believe, but also why you believe it. Because it will certainly not suffice for us to leave and say, well, yes, I, I remember something about the Apostles' Creed. I remember saying something about that I believe that Jesus Christ was, according to his human nature, conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. We want you to know exactly what you believe and why you believe it. And again, we say that this is essential for the Christian faith. And so in the incarnation, we just simply summarize this by way of introduction also. Christ remained what he had always been, that is, eternal God, but he became what he was not. It is a very real man. So in the incarnation, Jesus Christ remained what he always was, eternal God, but became that which he was not, a very real human man. And that, my beloved friends, is the wonder of the incarnation to which we turn our attention. Considering this theme this evening, our belief concerning the incarnation, the word incarnation, we often use it, but just a pause to clarify, simply means to become flesh. Flesh in the sense of a human nature. A human nature which we will, Lord willing, look at more specifically also next Sunday evening, but a human nature comprised of both body and soul. Our belief concerning the incarnation will notice, first of all, the action in the incarnation, and then secondly, the manner of the incarnation, and then thirdly, the result of the incarnation. So the action, the manner, and the result of the incarnation, or this act whereby the second person of the Trinity took unto himself, assumed is the theological word, a very real human nature, body and soul. This action, we note first of all this evening, was an action of promise. Uh, the author of the Belgian Confession picks up 
that this promise that God had fulfilled, this promise, this promise is what we spoke about uh, two weeks ago when we considered Genesis 3, verse 15, uh, and thereupon humanity being plunged into the abyss and the pit of misery by way of their own sinful rebellion against God. God came in an act of condescending grace and mercy, and he made a promise. And the promise was not that Adam would do something. The promise wasn't that Eve would do something. The promise wasn't some type of self-help, moralistic, therapeutic deism, but rather the promise was that God would sovereignly intervene in his grace and in his mercy and would provide the seed of the woman. And the seed of the woman would crush the head of the seed of the serpent, a symbolic act indicating that the seed of the woman, that is, of course, Jesus Christ, would completely annihilate the forces of evil, and by doing so would also bring a restoration and a liberation for the people of God. Uh, now this is one of the, what we say, hermeneutical keys, and hermeneutics, uh, a big fancy word, it just simply means how we interpret the Bible. And, and one of the hermeneutical keys, one of the most basic Ideas we need to hold to when we open up our Bibles, especially in regards to the Old Testament, is that there is one promise that runs from Genesis into the book of Revelation. One promise. And that one promise is all tied to the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's a helpful check. When you open up the Bible, and maybe it's a passage in Genesis, maybe it's a passage in Exodus, maybe it's a passage in the Psalms, maybe it's a major prophet, maybe it's a minor prophet, maybe you make your way into the New Testament genre, and it's an account of the gospel, or it's one of the epistles of Paul. It does not matter where within the 66 canonical books you land, the passage is dealing with the promise of God's redemptive work through the incarnate Savior. This is important for us to understand because uh, there's a saying in Dutch, and I, I don't speak uh, Dutch. I wish I did, maybe uh, another time. But there's a saying in Dutch that goes something like this, every heretic has his text. Why do you think John had to write to the church and say, test the spirits because there are many who come along and they have a text, but they misinterpret the text. And they do so perhaps under the disguise of being a Bible teacher or a Bible preacher but they miss the whole point, and by missing the whole point, well, what they say is utter foolishness. So let us as a Christian congregation have this basic conviction that when we open up our Bibles, no matter where we are, the truth is that there is this revelation of this promise that God has made. And so we just pinpoint uh, a few stepping stones. Of course, there is the promise as it's given in Genesis 3, verse 15, and I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. You can skip forward to Genesis 49, verse 10. And there the promise comes again as Jacob blesses his sons and says, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the people. Uh, you can take a leap forward into Isaiah 7, verse 14. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. That is literally speaking, God with us. And what you find all throughout the Old Testament, and what we call the intertestamental era, is, is that the faithful people of God had their focus upon this promise, God is going to deliver us through the incarnate Savior. And you always find 
trouble when that promise blurs in the focus. You always find difficulty in the land of Israel when people begin to look around at the foreign nations and say, oh, look what they're doing. Look at their gods. Look at how they're worshiping. But the faithful remnant in the days of Baal, it was very, very minor, 7,000, but it was still there. The faithful remnant had their eyes of faith fixed upon this promise. And so you can see it in the account of Simeon. If you turn in your Bibles, if you are so inclined, Luke chapter 2 illustrates what I'm referring to, this living by this promise. There was this faithful elderly man of God, Simeon, and he coming into the temple in Luke 2, uh, verse 25, he's noted as a just and devout. But notice this, he's waiting for the consolation of Israel. Consolation is this beautifully rich word. He's waiting for the comfort of Israel. He's waiting for the redemption of Israel. He's waiting, hoping, longing. You might say that this Simeon was fulfilling the exhortation given uh, in our text of pardon, Psalm 130. Oh Israel, hope in the Lord, for with him mercy. And there Simeon is, hoping in the Lord. Knowing that the Lord God is merciful because the Lord God had given this promise concerning an incarnate Savior. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. You see, that is the essence of the promise. Because the title Christ means the anointed one. And in a unique apostolic era, self-revelation given to Simeon, Simeon had been convinced that he would not die until he had seen with his own eyes his own senses, the fulfillment of that promise. So he came by the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he, that is Simeon, took him, that is Jesus, up in his arms. Now just pause there and note the remarkable action that is happening. Simeon is holding the Son of God in his very hand. However can this be? The eternal Son of God who spoke all things into existence out of nothing is being held by the hands of the devout Simeon. And Simeon sees the fulfillment of the promise and he says, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation which you have prepared before the face of all peoples, a light to bring revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people, Israel. Simeon could hold the eternal Son of God in his hands because of what we call the assumption. And so the action of the incarnation is an action of assumption. Assumption just simply means this, the action of taking on. It's not the same as assume. You might say, well, I assume this to be true. You take it as granted. This is assumption, the action of taking on. And so the eternal Son of God, and just for quick review, based upon the self-revelation of God given in Scripture, we believe that there is one only true God. There is one divine nature. This one divine nature includes, however, three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And those three distinct persons are co-eternal, co-equal, and co-essential. And that I would submit to you, congregation, must be doctrines and truths and realities that we know backwards and forwards. 
that if someone were to stop us on the streets of Pella, Iowa, and I know this is a hypothetical situation, and say, what do you believe about the Trinity? We would say, I believe there is one only divine God, one divine nature, but in that divine nature there are three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They are co-equal, co-eternal, and co-essential. And this one God, three persons, alone is to be worshipped and glorified by us. Well, how then can Simeon hold the Savior in his hands? Because the second person of that triune God assumed or took unto himself a very real human nature. And the, the danger, and I feel it more than anyone, the danger is you and I say, we've heard this before. The danger is that you and I have heard it so many times. We just perhaps nod in agreement, do a quick look at the wristwatch, and say, didn't he preach about this a few weeks ago? I think he did. We should come up with some new material. Simeon beheld salvation. He was filled with a flood of emotions. Comfort, contentment, spiritual comfort, spiritual contentment, praise, joy, thanksgiving. Now it's not our actual hands that hold the Savior Jesus Christ, but our hearts by faith hold the same Jesus Christ. What emotions fill your heart? As you hear about the eternal Son of God taking unto himself a very real human nature. Well, we leave the question for you to answer in the quietness of your own soul. We move forward then to the manner of the incarnation. Well, how did this take place? How did this incarnation take place? We would just simply say two things this evening in somewhat of a concise manner, because we'll come back to this in future uh, weeks. The manner of the incarnation, first of all, was a supernatural manner, and secondly, it was a necessary manner, a supernatural manner. And here again, I just want to underscore the absolute importance of believing in the supernatural. Now, I don't believe the belief in the supernatural, you know, the UFOs and those types of things, Area 51s and making treks there, believing in some type of supernatural activity, by this type of supernatural, I mean that God can and does work above and beyond the so-called laws of nature. Our God is a God, yes, who often works through the laws of nature, but who can certainly, when he is so well pleased, work above the laws of nature. And I would just simply tell you in all honesty, for full transparency this evening, if you hear these words... And if you are not willing to believe in any supernatural activity of God, then Christianity has nothing for you. If you are not able to bring your mind into humble submission to God and to believe that He is able to work things above the laws of nature, then I'm sad to say, but Christianity has nothing to offer you, at least not biblical Christianity. Because biblical Christianity is based upon the supernatural activity of God. Now, I wouldn't just leave you there if that's your mindset. I would encourage you, I would call for you to submit yourself to the Word of God and to humble yourself in your proud arrogance and say, yes, I believe that God is able to do whatsoever He wills to do because He is God. You see, it's important for us to believe in the Incarnation but it's also vitally important for us to believe in the supernatural manner of the incarnation. What do we mean by this supernatural 
manner of the incarnation. And of course, we have to be careful with our speech, but we believe, according again to the testimony of the Word of God, that the conception of the human nature of Jesus Christ within the womb of Mary occurred without any male participation. Uh, And again, you can see uh, our summary in the Belgian Confession follows the, the wonderful, clear vagueness of Scripture. What do I mean by clear vagueness? Well, you can think, for example, of the explanation given for how this manner would occur to the Virgin Mary. And of course, she had her questions also when it was revealed to her by way of an angelic messenger that she would conceive and bear a son. She said, in essence, how can this be? I do not know a man. And then the angel says, Uh, in Luke 1, verse 35. And the angel answered and said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the highest will overshadow you. And and there there is the wonderful clear vagueness. On the one hand, we can say much about how the conception took place. On the other hand, we say very little about how the conception took place. Within the womb of Mary, the creative power of the Holy Spirit was supernaturally active so that there was the conception of a very real human nature. And that very real human nature, including body and soul, including everything that is a constitutional part of the soul, the mind, the will, and the affections, and everything that is a constitutional part of the body, was there in infant form. And united, connected, not blended, not confused, but united, There was also the eternal divine nature. And so that the product was indeed the eternal Son of God, but also the very real Son of Man. And so the angel continued explaining to the Virgin Mary in Luke 1 verse 35, therefore also that the Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. Now now higher critics, just a note, uh, if you're wondering, higher critics... German rationalistic liberalism, uh, they they came to the Scriptures and they began to deny the virgin birth, or perhaps what would be more precisely, the the virgin conception. And and they had this way of saying, well, there's only two passages in Scripture that clearly speak about the virgin conception. Those of us who take the Word of God as authoritative, we say two is certainly sufficient to support the doctrines of our faith. One would be sufficient. Luke 1 verse 35 is sufficient evidence to prove the supernatural manner. The only question is whether or not you and I will submit ourselves to the clear and authoritative word of God. That when Luke 1 verse 35 clearly records the, in an inspired manner, words of the angel. And the angel answered and said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the highest will overshadow you. And when the scripture account continues to explain that Joseph did not know his wife until after the birth of Jesus, we then clearly understand that this was a supernatural conception. This is a wonder of wonders. But why did this have to take place that way? That brings us into the necessity of this manner. Uh, It was necessary because of the eternal nature of the Son of God. Uh, the, The conception had to be supernatural. Because yes, this was a very real human nature, but this was more than just a human nature. This was the 
mystical union of the eternal Son of God with a very real human nature. You could also say it this way, that there had to be this unique, necessary, supernatural manner so that the child to be born would be a sinless human nature. The child that would be born would be what? We talked about this morning, and here again you notice what we call the organic unity of the Bible. These sermons were not necessarily designed to dovetail together. But what did we, boys and girls, what did we say about the lamb that had to be chosen this morning? Well, more specifically, what did the Bible say about that lamb? It had to be one that was unblemished. So you you, you couldn't pick a lamb that had a broken leg, or, or that was kind of sickly and weak. You had to pick one that was unblemished, that was perfect. Why? Well, because that lamb was a picture of the Lamb of God that would take away the sin of the world. And that Lamb of God was, of course, and is, of course, Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ, in order to atone for our sins, uh, had to have a very real human nature, like unto ourselves. And so you notice how the Belgian Confession just strings all of these verses, all these phrases of Scripture together, emphasizing the very real sinless humanity. Because in order to be a sacrifice for someone else's sin... The sacrificial victim, Jesus Christ, had to be sinless. And if, and again we speak with uh, careful discretion, if Joseph would have been involved, he would have been involved with his own sinful, fallen human nature and would have simply transferred on this hereditary guilt of original sin. But God wonderfully, miraculously, you might say, interrupts the flow of sinless humanity from one generation to the next generation as it has and it will continue until the end of time. And he interrupts by the supernatural action of the Holy Spirit upon the Virgin Mary. And thus with great holy wonder and mystery we profess with the church of all ages that we believe that Jesus Christ was conceived by the Holy Spirit born of the Virgin Mary, without any male participation, to be the one and only substitute and Savior. And that brings us into the result of the Incarnation. What is the result of the Incarnation? Uh, Here we're drawn to uh, also words that are basically taken verbatim from Scripture. At the very end of the Belgian Confession, in this way, He is truly our Emmanuel. This congregation is the result of the Incarnation, the provision of Emmanuel. And Emmanuel means translated God with us. I read somewhere recently that there are estimated over 4,000 religions in the world. Religions as far as a system of beliefs about uh, some transcendent being, some higher object, and then also a certain way of life that you are to live in light of this transcendent being. Over 4,000 of them. And you can survey as many as you have time to survey, and you will find that every single one of them has a system by which a human person ascends up to the God or gods. Perhaps it's a physical ascent. Go find the highest mountain peak and climb up to it, and there you will find peace for your soul. Perhaps it is uh, some different ascent, but the goal of all world religions is that you somehow ascend up to God 
only Christianity, only the true exercise of religion, the true knowledge of God, flips that around. And it's not so much that we ascend up to God because that's impossible. We cannot ascend up to God. Nor by our fallen nature would we even want to ascend up to God. And so you remember that Genesis 3 does not talk about Adam and Eve's wisdom and uh, crafty uh, a way back into the fellowship of God. It's not as if they stand outside the garden and go, well, well let's sneak around the, the flaming vengeance of the fiery angels. But rather it's God in His grace and in His mercy who comes down to man. God comes down to, to you and to me. God condescends down to us. He sees from all of eternity according to His decree. He sees our fallen condition. He recognizes our total inability. And He's moved with a paternal sympathy. A paternal sympathy that we call, according to the Scripture, grace and of mercy. And, and that's something of why Simeon was so overwhelmed and why he began to sing a song of praise and of Gratitude unto this great God who had done these marvelous things. You see, if salvation was by way of us climbing up to God, well then certainly let us have humanistic-focused services. Yes, let us then gather together on Sundays and sing songs about how great we are and how great we ought to be and how there's this unlimited potential in each and every one of us. Well then let's get in a circle and say we see greatness in every one of us, but that's not the gospel, and thanks be to God that's not the gospel. Because I'm not great. And you're not great either. But in Christ you are. And this is what is so absolutely paralyzing to take dead sinners and tell them to try to climb their way back to God. That's a cruel, cruel thing to do. Congregation, you don't have to climb back to God. You can't climb back to God. Emmanuel is not us with God, but God with us. God with us in the provision of a Savior. God with us for the realization of covenantal fellowship. And in the week that lies ahead, you find yourself bombarded with fears, anxieties, the, the stressors of everyday life here in the fallen world, just simply say, Emmanuel, God with us. Because that is the result of the incarnation. And that is the display of these glorious attributes. The incarnation displays the almighty hand of God especially with these two attributes, the incarnation reveals rather God's saving power. Jesus, speaking to his disciples in Matthew 19, spoke about the way of salvation and the disciples heard about the camel going through the eye of a needle. They were greatly astonished and they said, who then can be saved? If salvation is like a camel going through the eye of a needle. Who then can be saved? Remember what Jesus said to them? Jesus said to them, with men, this is impossible. Rules out all legalism. Rules out all moralism. Rules out even, dare we say, all just simply conservatism. 
you can never be good enough, conservative enough, traditional enough, old-fashioned enough to enter into the kingdom of heaven. Disciples say, well, is there any hope? Not with man. With man, this is impossible. And then there is that beautiful, transformative, powerful word of Scripture, but. But with God. But with God, all things are possible. And the incarnation... The incarnation shows us that as far as salvation is concerned, with man it is impossible. But with God, it is possible. Not only does it display God's power, but also it displays God's love. Now the incarnation accomplishes more than just displaying the attributes of God, but it does display the attributes of God and God's love. Now God is not just love in an unclarified, unqualified manner. Of course, God is love. That's simply a quote from Scripture. God is love, and he shows his love in the incarnation. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. And so as Simeon, as a result of the supernatural manner, the necessary manner of the incarnation, held the fulfillment of this sovereign covenantal promise that was given in Genesis 3, verse 15, that flowed like a river of grace and mercy all throughout the Old Testament. As Simeon held in his hands Emmanuel, he saw something of that power, and he saw something of that love. And as we behold the same Emmanuel with the arms of faith, you might say, our reception also is of this Savior. And then our response ought to be, behold the power and the love of our Almighty God. So the incarnation should never be something that just lulls us to theological sleep or slumber. But it ought to be something that revives our weary hearts and renews our strength for the day and the week that lies ahead so that we would go forth motivated by an overwhelming sense of gratitude to fulfill whatever vocation our King of Kings has given unto us, testifying that we have beheld the power and the glory of the only begotten Son of God. Amen. Our Heavenly Father, we do stand amazed by way of renewed appreciation for the wonderful reality of the Incarnation. Emmanuel, a word that we so often take upon our lips and that pass before our eyes in the reading and in the singing and also in our speaking. Father, this evening we pray that there might be a holy pause to our life, that we might stop, so to speak, in a similar manner as Moses before the burning bush that we might look and contemplate and say in our own hearts and to one another and also to you, behold the power and the love of our God. Lord, bless these words to that end, we humbly ask, for the sake of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen.